Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. On today's show, we'll hear about the controversies surrounding the Grammys. That includes sexual harassment and assault allegations against men at the top of the organization and issues around racial and gender parity. Our entire culture still markets to young women and girls that our value comes from our looks instead of our skill set. We'll talk with CMT about how few female artists are played on country radio and how CMT is pledging to give equal airtime to women on their music video channel. We have trained people not to hear female voices. If you can listen to radio or you can, you know, go on a playlist and not hear a female voice for an hour or 90 minutes, of course, when a female voice comes on, it's a disruptor. But first, a conversation with Michael Kuanuka. You might recognize his music as the theme to the HBO hit show Big Little Lies, starring Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman. Did you ever want it? The British singer-songwriter released his third full-length album in November. Michael Kuanuka joins me now to talk about his life and music. Hello. Hey. So Kuanuka is the name of your latest album, and I have a feeling it's also a name that the teachers you had growing up botched during that first roll call in any class that you were in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I understand that at some point, you know, during your music career, people were like, do you really want to use that as your last name, you know, on stage? I think there's so much power in using this as an album title. So why did you de- decide to use Kuanuka as this album title? Yeah, pretty much... Um for all those reasons you mentioned, it was like kind of almost like a re reclaiming and and kind of I guess changing my own perception of myself. I guess it was a kind of like a closing of that chapter because the name for me used to just cause a bit of like identity issues and just feeling like a bit like of a fish out of water. And you know, in your youth, you know, you're finding your your place and I just never seemed to really really feel like I could just like fully settle and all right the way from when I was in school people excuse me not being able to say the name and then becoming becoming a musician which is like my wildest dreams coming true and then feeling like that name's not a name you would put you know in lights or whatever Um, and then the same thing kind of like history repeated itself with you know first coming out you know remind me of school where you know someone you might be doing a radio show or like or, uh, you know, an interview for, like, a blog, and then someone just still can't say it. And it just kind of reminds you of of being in, being in school and feeling that same way of, like, damn, I want to, I wish maybe I should just change my name. I wish my name was simple. So it was kind of like a way, this whole album is just a way of me showing to myself really, and, 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 and um, listeners and people that might hear the music that that has changed and, it's, and, and, and that I'm more self-accepting and I'm proud of my heritage and my name and who I am now and it's not something that I see as something negative anymore. 
So your parents uh, moved to London from Uganda, is that correct? That's right, yeah. Can you talk about why they moved to London and what, what it was like for you growing up in London? Yeah, yeah, they, they moved. Um, similar reason why kind of a lot of people immigrate, really. Emigrate is um, studying opportunities, opportunities to, to earn a living that might be better, um, opportunities for, for if you're going to start a family, you may give them more chances than what my parents or that they had growing up. And I think that's one of the, that's the main reason reasons my parents moved to London and at the time in Uganda there was it was tough time it was run by Idi Amin who's um, definitely by to say the least a questionable leader and dictator so a lot of Ugandans were leaving and yeah growing up in London for me and, and you know and I've got one brother was was great it was like those were all the things all the things I think my parents probably wanted to have and see their kids have were there you know opportunities to study and go to good schools and and you know, discover music and be able to play play instruments and whatever it is we wanted to do, and it was yeah, it was a, it was a, largely a really really nice happy upbringing. I want to talk about a few tracks um, on your latest album as well as some tracks um, on your previous album. So um, the topic of race comes up um, on this latest mm. album, Kuanuka. You hear it in the track "Another Human Being." And for the first time, the community was confronted with Negroes in places. You know, this track is almost an interlude. It's mostly instrumental until you get to the very end and then you start hearing um, those voices. Can you tell us Mm. about this track? Yeah, this track is kind of like, um, there's a few places where there's these interludes. Basically, I've always wanted to do an album where I wanted this album, I wanted it to be something that if you if someone wanted to, um, they would put it on and then there'll be very few chances to be um distracted or get out of the world that I was trying to create with this record. So I decided I wanted to have things sometimes to join the songs together so that so that there wasn't like a fade out pause and then another song because that might leave an opportunity for someone to be like, Oh, I better go I'm gonna or get on their phone especially in this we're kind of in a really distracted um way of living now. Um, so it started with just that, and then it was the qu- next question was like, well, what could I do? And you know, one of the producers on the album, Danger Mouse, is seasoned at so many things in terms of production and making the album, and making records. And one of those things is sample-based music. And and um, I, I, you know, I asked, could you find anything that we could use as interludes? And he was down and found these sit-ins. You know, they're basically these from people in civil rights America, black African Americans. Um, around the early 70s or 60s and early 70s, talking about their struggles with identity, about race, about everything that was happening at the time, you know, real struggle. And it was kind of a great way to do, kind of describe what was happening in a small way in my own head when I was growing up in England, just kind of finding out who it is you are. You know, it's, it's, you're, you're, from it, you're from there, you live there, but you, you use this part of you that knows that you're like, from somewhere else, first generation. It's, it's an interesting feeling that, um, and that's kind of the story behind that. Those interludes and, and yeah, man. And I'm surprised that this interlude, another human being, didn't go into the song "Hero" because you start mm. listening to the song "Hero," which is just two tracks down, um, mm. and in the song "Hero," you you allude to gun violence um, in this song. Yeah. I love you like the father 
It's on the music game. I guess they killed the mother. Can you talk about what Hero is about? Yeah. Yeah, Hero's an interesting song. It's like kind of like a dual uh, meaning for me. The first like lyric I kind of found with that song creatively was that chorus, Am I Your Hero? Am I Your Hero Now? It was just straight, just came out. My hero. My hero now. And what I was kind of thinking at the time, subconsciously, was you know, the idea of if, if when an artist breaks through and becomes this kind of like global superstar, they can often become these heroes for people, whether it's the classics like Bowie or Hendrix or Lennon, whatever, you know. And I, I noticed that with a lot of these artists that did do that, you know, Elton John and Freddie Mercury, these people have got films now, you're hearing about their life, they had to kind of give up a big part of who they are in order to gain the recognition, that whole, that classic thing of sell your soul at the crossroads kind of thing. And I remember sitting there was um, at the time in the studio thinking about, oh, I'm doing my third album. Um, what do I do now next that can take me to the next stage? Um, I still obviously had thoughts about my name. Would it be that you change your name to something that's more palatable so that maybe more people might pass around? Who knows? And so I kept thinking, oh, if I did that, am I your hero now? Am I your hero now? And that was the first... Um, thing that kind of came up and you know I won't change my name no matter what they call me is one of the first lyrics in that song I won't change my name no matter what they call me but at the same time relating to the gun violence I was thinking loads about Fred Hampton from the Black Panthers and obviously at this point I'd already heard some of these sit-in speeches that Brian had found and I was remember being a couple of years ago interested in Fred Hampton and how he got shot down really young. And he was this hero, heroic figure that was the opposite of like a rock and roll star who was completely himself. If anything, wanted to be more himself and um, kind of bemoaned um, his name in a sense, the opposite that I, I did. You know, he would be, I felt like if I had spoken to him in person, he would be like, you have kept your real name. You know, you, ha- you don't have a slave name. You have Kiranuka. That's, that's your heritage is in there you know it says so much um, and so he became a real inspiration of the song and started singing about how he got shot down so young and how like to, and then that lyric to die heroes all that we know now kind of it seems like all these great figures that had such great things to say not least Martin Luther King uh, Malcolm X John Lennon you know Bob Marley these people these messages they just died <laughs> so young um, Hendrix so that's and, and, and the song kind of was also about that how, you know, becoming this big old figure comes at such a cost. You either give yourself away, like a Freddie Mercury out John, or you get killed. And that's kind of what Hero is about. My hero. My hero You have a track um, on your second album, so you're not this latest one, but the one before. Um, and, and there was a track called Black Man in a White World. I'm a 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 black man in a white world. And you've said that you thought the song would get canned after you, you know, you were kind of riffing on the guitar, came up with kind of this chorus and thought... I don't think anyone's going to go for this. You know, you had white producers in the room and then they were like, no, we should we should roll with this. And then you start playing the song on tour. And there were some moments where you were like, I just don't feel like 
this should be in the set list or, you know, you kind of felt like maybe you should take it off the set list when you were touring. I'm just wondering, like, were there certain cities when you were on tour where you're like, I don't know if I should play this in this specific city? Were there certain cities that you felt maybe uncomfortable playing that song? Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. Well, the main thing is most of my audience is, is, is white. So the first thing I thought when I came up with the initial song, it was like, you know, how are people going to take this? And and that's like what I meant by, because there was um, Inflow in the room, black producer, um, but then there was a white engineer. And I, I remember asking him straight away, was like, what would you, I think he came back in the room and we had like something in there. I was like, you know, listen to this, you know, what does this make you feel? He was all right with it. But, yeah, there was some places when I went on tour, I just thought, I wonder how people would take this if they don't understand. don't know my music. Maybe they've heard another song and they're just going to come to the gig and just check out, you know, other stuff. And I got I got a bit nervous about what, what the response would be. And at the time, there was a lot of stuff happening in America, you know, with race. And, so, and I was coming out here trying to promote the record and playing shows. So I was worried about coming out here and playing that song. <laughs> um, yeah, because when would that have been, that, like 2016 or something? It was 2016, so it was an interesting time. Um, and I remember think, feeling that song, because in the UK and Europe, that song was the first single and did did okay and was a really good like kind of introduction to the record. It was a bit different here in America, um, and I could feel that just because it was so much tension. So there was a worry, but I soon realized that that's the whole point of art, in a way, really, is that you can say things in in art that you couldn't maybe just say around the dinner table. And I, and there was no way to say it, but that really was how I felt as a human being, is that, you know, people could take it negatively or positively, I don't, it's up to them, but it was just a blanket true statement. And you can put onto it what, it what you want, but it was just this idea of me growing up in London in a white neighborhood, um, me playing gigs and it's mainly white audiences, those aren't bad things, you know. They're actually not bad things, but it is what it is, and it causes you to think of your identity way more because you know that you stick out like a sore thumb. It doesn't necessarily mean that people are being derogatory, although that does happen every now and again for, for, for what happens to black people all the time. And so I, when I realized that, I thought it, it needs to be said because I'm just really singing my life, you know. And, and it was fine in the end. Yeah. Do you feel like there's more racial tension in the U.S. versus the U.K.? I think it's just a different uh, in America than it is in the U.K. I think there's racial tension in the U.K. It's a lot more subtle and swept under the carpet. I mean, English people are just different inherently. So people brush things under the carpet anyway, just in life. Stiff up a lip, you know, carry on. Don't say anything too offensive um, and we'll hush, hush, hush. Where America, everything, for me, it's just my opinion, is, is more louder and wider and, bi- and bigger and, and more expressive in so many ways so you just see it clearer but it's the kind of the same thing it's just in, in England it's like under the carpet swept under um, so you would not see it straight away it's really very very subtle um, that's how I would describe the differences yeah so your music has been prominently featured on television, most notably as a theme of Big Little Lies. Your music has also been featured on the show Dear White People and Parenthood and in the movie Yesterday. Mm. So how much mm. has just TV and movie placement impacted your career? Yeah, hugely, you know, hugely. It's something I owe a lot to, you know, especially uh, Cold Little Heart and Big Little Lies. I mean, that that show was huge and really 
kind of opened me the door to so many more people for me as an artist to be able to come here and go on the road, play shows, play festivals. And it was really such a huge point in my career because it really um, brought people to the music. So I really owe a lot to TV and, and, and film. And, and I think we're in an age where TV and film is having kind of a, a, a type of kind of heyday, you know, a modern heyday in a way. Because I think film and TV has really benefited from the internet in a way that music kind of has suffered. Mm. Um, streaming, you know, you know, Netflix, Amazon, it's like there's so much money in it. And the production is incredible. The acting's amazing. The, the writing's really good. Um, so not only um, is it a way to get my music out, it's like going and being associated with like incredible pieces of art. And one of those things like I was really proud of is having a bit of love and hate on the song Love and Hate on When They See Us and the Ava DuVernay film on the Netflix. And that was like incredible show and beautifully written and beautifully acted. And um, you can see people choose music so specifically and carefully for what's with the scenes and it's really beautiful so I, I owe so much to 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 that and that, that's happened the fact that that's happened in my for my career you know Love and hate. how much more we What do you think defines your sound? You know, I just tried describing it, but I don't think I did it well. Mm. But like, if you were to, like, what is, you know, when you're putting your music together, is there something that you're like, I'm doing this thing and it's and it's setting my music apart from others? Do you feel like you have something signature in your sound and what would it be? Oh, that's, that's cool. That's interesting. I mean, you, you keep discovering the more you make, but I guess what I try and do, I, which I think could be unique, I mean, um, I guess you'd have to ask audiences too, but it's just that I always like to say have music that's really, really human music, like music from the heart. Um, you know, you, you'd say soulful, but like e- even deeper, like to sing about things that kind of non-discriminative, like they could, you can't discriminate. Like it, no matter where you're from, whether you're black or white, man or woman, we all have, we all can relate with how we feel and react with life and how we go through life we have similar hardships um in terms of breakups and love and good things bad things sadness identity all of these things we have a relationship with and we can all get together about with and we can relate with each other through those things and i think my music is describes those things and is about those things i think maybe that's the thing that sets it apart is i always want want to feel that in the chords and the melodies and the lyrics and in the sound, you know, kind of like earth music, you know, music that feels like it's in the earth, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I've been speaking with Michael Kiwanuka. His most recent album is out. He'll be playing at the Showbox in Seattle on Wednesday. Michael, thanks so much for chatting. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is Sound and Vision. 
So the Grammys happened on Sunday, but before we dive into controversies surrounding the Grammys, let's highlight a rising star who took home a Grammy over the weekend. It's Coffee. She won for Best Reggae Album for her EP called Rapture. She's 19 years old and won a Grammy even though she hasn't even put out a full-length album yet. KEXP's DJ Miss Ashley has this profile. If you follow Jamaican music at all, you probably already know who Coffee is. But if you don't, you probably will soon. Coffee's been dropping singles for the last couple of years, beginning with Burnin', released in 2017. That's followed by Ragamuffin in 2018, which landed on her 2019 EP, Rapture. Toast, which was the second single released ahead of the EP, has nearly 98 million YouTube views. Just two years in the game and the young star from Spanish Town, Jamaica, is representing her home in a big way. And she hasn't even released a full-length album yet. So what's the big deal? To begin with, Coffee's lyrics are refreshingly humble, like the song Toast, which suggests that if we're blessed with great things in our life, we shouldn't boast, and we should be grateful and give thanks. It's a great message, especially for the youth to hear. But what I think is particularly unique about Coffee is her flow. Her smooth ability to structure her words and deliver them is unique, and something that, along with her voice, once you identify, you'll know it's her every time you hear it. She's approaching her 20s this coming February and has already proven that she can hang with the big kids. Legendary Jamaican dancehall singer and DJ Coco T was perhaps the first big name to invite Coffee on stage at a show, while contemporaries like Chronix and Protégé were quick to collaborate with Coffee too. Check out Chronix and Coffee's performance together for BBC's One Extra at Tough Gong Studios back in 2018. Coffee is quoted in her bio saying, I want to be a positive movement and make a positive movement at the same time. I want to bring vibes and positive change. I want to impact the world. Her career is just beginning, and I can't wait to hear what else Coffee has brewing. For KEXP's Sound and Vision, I'm DJ Miss Ashley. So women swept the top five categories of the Grammys on Sunday, with Billie Eilish taking home awards for Album of the Year, Record of the Year, Song of the Year, and Best New Artist, and Lizzo taking home the award for Best Pop Solo Performance. Yet there are still issues surrounding race and gender parity in the music industry. Last week, I spoke with drummer, musician, activist, and new Grammy voter, Madam Gandhi, about representation and the latest controversies around the Grammys. Here was our conversation. 
So the big news this past week has been around Grammy chief executive Deborah Dugan, and she started her role in August. She was placed on administrative leave last week, allegedly because an assistant at the Grammys felt that she had a bullying management style. But Dugan's dismissal also came less than three weeks after she sent a memo to the organization stating issues with massive and unnecessary legal bills and conflict of interest. And then this week, there was news that she filed a lawsuit against the Grammys, saying she was sexually harassed by its legal counsel and that her predecessor, Neil Portnow, raped a female artist, among other accusations against the organization. So what do you think all these allegations and the dismissal of Dugan say about the Grammys and the music industry as a whole right now? I think the number one takeaway for anyone to listen to this, uh, who is listening to this, is that when you operate out of a place of privilege, which many folks um, who have been sitting you know, at the Grammys for years and years and years, when somebody challenges that unearned privilege um, because it doesn't work for everybody uh, and is, is sort of seeking towards a place of equality, you tend to feel like you are the one who is being oppressed. And so when I read the emails as a Grammy voting member, you know, they're sending us emails and updates in, in, in fairly real time, you know, one every couple of days, these past uh, 10 days since it's happened, I'll read these emails and it really does feel like this tone of older men kicking and screaming that someone is challenging their privilege. That's truly the, the sentiment that it feels as the recipient. If Deborah Dugan had created a real problem in the industry and was doing something that was truly unethical, I think it would have been handled in a far more private way. I don't think they would have done it 10 days before the Grammys. Mm. I think they would have allowed the Grammys to proceed, maybe not pass her a mic and then take her out of her position. My personal take is that she was going to reveal something that would have threatened the privilege of those already in place and also threatened the sort of the permissible behavior of a boys will be boys culture. And because of that, they were happy to distract the whole situation and take her out ahead of time. Yeah. I mean, in this lawsuit that she filed this week, I mean, again, there's allegations, you know, with issues of conflict of interest with the Grammys, like, for example, in the voting process, which, you know, you are a new Grammy voter. Um, you know, Dugan stated that the Grammy voting process allows nomination committee members to push forward artists with whom they have relationships. And then the complaint also states that it's not unusual for artists who have relationships with board members and who are ranked at the bottom of the initial 20 artist list to end up receiving nominations. So, I mean, you know, considering you are now a voting member of the Grammys, what was your reaction when you saw a comment like that about the Grammy nomination process? I think that um, every process should be reevaluated and updated every year. I mean, any organization should try to make its own work, its own output, the best and most robust version of the system that it can be. So from that perspective, I'm sure the, the claims she brought forward are, are valid. The flip side of that that I would gently push back on is that as a voting member, I find the process to be fairly straightforward. Everyone submits their plea to be considered for nominations and people are uploading and submitting. And then we as the Grammy voters, um, thousands of people all around the world who, by the way, have to have 12 musical credits out in the world, which means that they themselves are creative people. They're not industry um, you know, suits, for lack of a better word. We're sitting here, we're at our desk. And I'm, and I'm voting by myself on my laptop what I genuinely think is the best song, and I'm listening to samples. Once that process goes through, then they do bring it to a close, a smaller 
round of of industry folks, 50-50 gender parity, who are listening for the nuances that many general members don't have the time to listen for. They're saying, wow, the master on this track one is louder than the master of track three, or the chord progression, um, you know, detracts from the overall body of the work. So it's, it, it doesn't make sense. Things like that, you know, and those nuances are powerful. I think that gives credibility to the whole thing. Now, maybe one final comment I'll add to that is that there is a nuance where if I have a friend who's sending me all their stuff and they happen to be submitting for a nomination, there's definitely going to be an inherent bias because I know this person and I love their music. But I don't think that that's problematic. I think the point of having a, a diverse voting member and vo- voting body is that ultimately the best vote does win out. Yeah, that's and that's interesting. I didn't know how that whole voting process works. Um you know, as recent as last month, um, Dugan said she had plans to tackle gender and racial equity issues for the Grammys. Do you have any idea of of what those plans might have entailed? And if not, what would you like to see done in terms of seeing more more diversity with gender and and race represented at the Grammys? That's such a great question. I think, you know, of, of the little bit that I've heard, because I do have some friends um, over at the Recording Academy um, who I'm in touch with throughout the year, they really had a wonderful vibe from from Deborah. You know, apparently on the night before this news broke out, uh, she had brought a donuts for the entire office to be able to celebrate one week out and being really excited for the whole thing and congratulating people and sort of upping the office morale. Um, I also heard that in some of her meetings, she would have the interns and temps from each department present on behalf of the department to really see if there was this continuity from top to bottom of everyone being equally engaged in the work that they're doing. And I mean, as somebody who's now later in my career, if I'm having my intern present on my behalf, that's a pretty big deal. That means they have to be very engaged and and well-researched. So I love that. Um, I think in terms of gender parity, the kinds of things that I would love to see is more diverse leadership at the top. I think, um, you know, this year alone, I felt uh, really encouraged by the few women uh, members who I'm friends with at the Grammys, just by them teaching me about how to be the best voting member I can be or introducing me to other folks in the industry and mentoring me a bit. I think I find that more challenging um, with men uh, just from a connection standpoint and maybe also sometimes feeling um, concerned about their <laughs> their motivation. Uh, and then I think finally, I would love to see the Grammy continue to fund initiatives that gets more women in the studios and increasing their technical skill set. Yeah. A new report from USC came out this week. They do this report every single year where we look at, you know, gender in the music industry. And the most recent report um, said that, you know, when it comes to pop music, you know, those on like the Billboard Hot 100 charts, only one out of five pop artists are women. And then only one out of five artists in the top Grammy nomination categories are women. And as we've reported here on Sound and Vision before, um, only about 2% of music producers are women. And that's reflected in this recent report. Nothing has changed over the past few years, maybe like a half percentage point. Um, do you see, you know, gender parity getting better in the music industry um, or what issues are we still facing and what do we need to do? I see it as like a three pronged attack. I think the first thing is recognizing that 
our entire culture still markets to young women and girls that our value comes from our looks instead of our skill set. So I think there is a cultural shift that has to happen where we allow women to step into the fullest of their skill sets. I think the second thing is visibility. You know, I try my best, even if I don't love the beat that I just make, the simplest uh, activity of just posting it on my Instagram so that people really see what it looks like. This is me opening my laptop and making a beat on my plane, on a plane or on a on my desk. And that shows people that that you can do it, too. Yeah. I mean, kind of going back to that first USC study, they've been doing it for a few years now, looking at again at at gender uh, parity issues within the music um, world. And I guess, you know, in 2018, when these results came out, Neil Portnow, the former chief of the Grammys, responded to the report, you know, looking at how few uh, female artists there were, how few female producers there were, etc. And he responded by saying women need to stand up. If you could have reacted to Portnow in that moment, what would you have said? I would have pulled him aside and I said, thank you so much for wanting, you know, to encourage more women to play. But let me explain to you why that comment is so problematic and so disconnected from the reality of women and femmes day to day experiences. What tends to happen with a lot of women is that we are already there's an already inherent bias that perceives us to be not as good at our instruments. Secondly, when we do fall behind, it's because of the issue that I already described. From childhood, we're told that we're valued to be sexy and to be hot on a stage and wear heels instead of to just play our guitar and then look however we need to look to show up professional. And then the third aspect is the fact that many women experience a lot of sexual harassment when it comes to wanting to partner with other men and other creatives. Many times women feel unsafe. They are looking for someone to put their music on to help produce uh, or collaborate with them. But men are expecting a sexual exchange in response instead of it just being a safe environment to make your music and move on. And so when you understand the bigger picture, saying something like, hey, step up and placing the onus on women without understanding the larger infrastructure is an ignorant comment to make. Um, we've talked a lot about gender issues in the music industry, but I also want to talk about just racial parity within the music industry. Do you feel like there's enough representation when it comes to people of color in music? I think that we have categories like whatever, urban, which is a ridiculous name for, <laughs> yes. for music to begin with. Um, Best urban album. Yeah, yeah, I saw that in the list. Yeah. It's just baffling that we still use that language. We have hip hop, we have reggae, we have blues, we have music that are traditionally black, black music. Um, but the fact that the categories are still so limited, I think, is is a testament to the fact that we're, we're lacking, if, if that makes sense. That that's my personal take. I feel like it's reductive to have categories when the artists who I love and follow are pushing boundaries every single day and and making music that's triumphant, that's so different, that's fresh. I mean, to keep it 100, I feel like Black American music pushes the entire world forward, and then you see a lot of the Caucasian artists trying to emulate that swag without having gone through the trials of, of living as a Black person in this country that was the very thing that enabled that music to be as good as it is, you know? So having these difficult conversations is the only way to create change. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious, you know, you, this again is your, is your first year voting in the Grammys. How were you chosen as part of this voting process? How does that, that work where they reach out to you and say, you know, we want you to be a part of this voting process? No, not at all. I think, uh, you know, since I was young, I've always had a curiosity for how the music business worked because I never wanted to feel like I was an artist who was exploited. I actively... Uh, a couple years ago, started learning about 
the Grammys. And I will say I had a really cool experience in 2015 where they had a student business plan competition and I ended up winning it actually about how we can make streaming royalties and a streaming business model work. So I won that. And then when I won, I wanted to learn more about how the Grammys work. Then I learned that you need to have 12 songs. At the time, I didn't have 12 songs. You also needed to know people who were uh, current voting members of the Grammys. And I had a couple friends, but I, I wasn't that dialed in. So it took a while to really start tapping into that community and saying, hey, I want to be someone who contributes to the change of who we give these awards to. And even if it's one vote, it's one vote in a different direction. And I want to be that person. That's amazing. So, um, you know, as, as we're approaching the Grammys, they happen Sunday night. Um, which artists were you really excited that became a nominee for a Grammy this year? Were there certain artists where you're like, yes, I'm so glad that they, they yeah, got there? This summer, this summer I performed at Roskilde and uh, on a similar stage nearby, we saw Rosalia perform, um, who is Spanish and has this really powerful, rich uh, folk kind of like traditional Spanish voice. And yes, they do all this pop stuff with her. But when I saw what she can really do from that roots standpoint, I she gained my respect. So Rosalia. And then, of course, uh, Lizzo will need, uh, you know, at least three cards to take all of the trophies she's about to win. Um, and then I loved uh, I loved Billie Eilish as well. Of course, I love the fact that she and her brother are writing together. I think that's so cool. So those are my uh, those are my my three faves. But there were a lot of other people in there who who got my vote this year. I've been speaking with musician and Grammy voter Madam Gandhi about race and gender issues in the Grammys and the music industry. Thank you so much for chatting today. Such a pleasure, Emily. Thank you. Well, speaking of gender parity, Country Music Television, or CMT, pledged last week that half of its videos from here on out will consist of female artists. I spoke with CMT's Senior VP of Music Strategy, Leslie Fram, about this step and why it matters. We spoke last Thursday. Here is our conversation. So CMT's gender ratio before this announcement was a 40 to 60 ratio, with women artists making up 40% of the video plays on CMT. So why was it important to make that ratio even. We really wanted to sit back and examine what we were doing first and foremost. You know, we've had a, a franchise called CMT's Next Women of Country since 2013. And with all the chatter that's been going on over the last several years about the lack of female voices on radio, terrestrial radio, and streaming services, we wanted to first look at what we were doing and say, you know, what more can we do before we ask other people to do more? And for us, it made a lot of sense to use our video hours on CMT and CMT music to make that statement. And there's so many, as you know, great female artists out there that are new or independent. And obviously the voices from the last two decades that we felt like it would be a very easy move for us to make and highlighting those voices and videos. Yeah, you, you mentioned, you know, uh, radio and streaming services. And I know that CMT is television. But when it comes to radio, I mean, gender parity is a real issue there. I understand since 2000, there's been a 66% decline in songs by women artists and country radio. And a recent study shows women are now played only 13% throughout the day on country radio. And you used to be on the radio side of things. You were a DJ and radio programmer. Why do you think there is such an issue with female airplay on country radio? You know, traditionally, and I haven't been in, in country that long. I've only been doing country for eight years, but it was the first thing we identified when I came over was that the numbers were declining year by year. 
There are a lot of theories out there, some saying that around 2015, a lot of women exited the format, including Taylor Swift, and there wasn't enough inventory to fill that. Although I do see that the record labels in Nashville are continuing to sign women, but it's really this vicious cycle because if you don't have a song on the radio, you don't get on a tour. And that makes labels a little hesitant about signing female artists. And then you have the publishing companies where writers write for men because notoriously they have more success. So we're trying to break that cycle. There are a lot of myths, uh, like women don't want to hear women and country music fans don't like female artists. There's never, ever, ever been any research to prove that. In fact, if you go to any shows, whether it's a female artist or a male artist, you will see a majority of women in the audience. So there are a lot of myths. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And we felt like instead of looking in a year from now, the same exact results, we needed to take action. And this is just the first phase. I mean, we're now going to go to the next phase of reaching out to other partners and other tastemakers and gatekeepers to say, what can you do? You know, is it 10% more airplay on terrestrial radio? What is it? Can you make some move so that in 2020, at the end of 2020, we see better results? Yeah, I mean, I heard that there was this thing called Tomato Gate, where there was this radio consultant, his name is Keith Hill, <laughs> and he said, if you play women on the radio, your ratings will go down. He said something along the lines of, it's not just the lettuce in our salad, the tomatoes of our salad are the females, like basically saying that like women artists are like this garnish on the salad, you know, it doesn't really make a difference. And again, he said, if you play women, the ratings will go down. Um, and I've heard that some radio stations have said flat out, we will not play two female artists in a row on the air. I mean, what has been your reaction to all this? I mean, if you think of, you know, just CMT, you know, have, have your ratings gone down when you play more women? No, as a matter of fact, uh, last year we have an award show called Artist of the Year. And last year we celebrated all women. I'm sorry, two years ago we celebrated all women. The, the entire show was a celebration of female artists and actually the ratings went up. We always see our viewers when we do any sort of artist research, women at the top, whether it's Carrie Underwood or Reba, women relate to women. You know, they either aspire to be them or they relate to them. They have an emotional connection to them. The myth about not being able to play two women in a row has never been proven. A lot of people think, well, maybe it's an inventory issue. But what's happened, and this is what's really sad and unfortunate about what Keith said, is that we have trained people not to hear female voices. If you can listen to radio or you can, you know, go on a playlist and not hear a female voice for an hour or 90 minutes. Of course, when a female voice comes on, it's a disruptor. So what we're saying is put women back in regular programming. Don't be relegated to a band-aid of an all-female this or an all-female that. Put them back in regular programming. Get people used to hearing female voices again because we don't, we're really concerned about the future of the format. If you look at uh, historically, all of the women that did break from Shania Twain to Reba, when they broke, they were bigger than male artists. So we want to get back to that where women voices are heard on the radio so women can be on tours. We're going into our uh, sixth year of a tour we have called Next Women of Country. Tanya Tucker is headlining it. But she's taking out all these brand new female artists who normally wouldn't have a stage to play on. So again, we're doing our part in we really hope our partners will come in and do something that will help this 
look a little bit different in 2020. Yeah. I mean, you know, speaking of Tanya Tucker, um, a USC uh, re- recently released a study this week that showed that only 10% of country songwriters are women and only 18% of country artists are women. So artists and songwriters. Yet, despite that disparity, it looks like more women have been nominated for Grammys this year in the country categories. And Tanya Tucker is kind of leading leading that charge. Um, you know, she, she's there for Song of the Year and then three out of the five best country song nominees are women and three out of the five best country albums were by women. So do you think this lack of airplay on, on radio has almost strengthened female country artists? Traditionally, the Grammys really vote on quality. And so there's a lot of quality out there. Women are making incredible music. The fact that Casey Musgraves won Album of the Year, not just Country Album of the Year, but overall Album of the Year, and had zero support at Country Radio is very telling. Casey Musgraves should be played on Country Radio, period. And the fact that she wasn't and won Album of the Year, what does that say? To me, it's an embarrassment. Is this kind of like, does it come to like demographics? So like, oh, well, the men are the ones that are, you know, that have the the pocketbooks and they're going to give us more money. So let's please them and play more men on the radio. I mean, is this is this an issue of demographics when it comes to just, you know, country radio and playing mostly male artists? I don't think so. I think if you go to an agency like a CAA, they will tell you that the power of the purse is really women <laughs> and they have more actually more demand for female artists for brands than they do male artists. You know, the men haven't really spoken up, but I think what they are doing, which is to me a positive change, is a lot of the superstar acts have announced that they're taking women out on tour. And that's really what needs to happen. Because again, like you have, you know, let's say somebody like a Tim McGraw, he's going to sell tickets because he's Tim McGraw, but he's going to take, he's taking out a new artist, Ingrid Andrus, which is a big statement. And you do have artists traditionally like Keith Urban, who's always, taken out female artists. So I think that the men, even though they haven't spoken up, are actually doing their part now by announcing their tours this year and supporting women and taking them out on the road. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, it sounds like CMT is you're doing your part, you know, trying to bring gender equity here um, when it comes to country music. But what are your just overall hopes when it comes to gender parity and country music as a whole? Here's what I'm really hoping. It It should always be about the best songs should win. I've seen some criticism online of people saying, oh, well, now it's just going to be about gender and it's not going to be about great music. That is not true. We are always saying, let the best songs win. But women have never been put in an equal playing field. That's what we're saying. It should be an equal playing field because there are so many songs that have missed out on having any exposure because it was because of their gender. So that's what we're hoping That was my conversation with CMT's Leslie Fram recorded last Thursday. It was announced last week that CMT will pledge to create a 50-50 gender split when it comes to the videos they play on their station. And while we're on the subject of women in country music, I should also add that Tanya Tucker took home the award for Best Country Song and Best Country Album at the Grammys on Sunday. Bring my flowers now while I'm living won't need your love when I'm gone Go spend time, tears and money On my own breathless body If your heart is in them flowers, bring them home This is Sound and Vision. 
There's a new tax that's impacting Vancouver, B.C.'s music venues. It's called an air tax, and smaller venues are now being taxed thousands of dollars more for basically the air above their head. They're being taxed for how many stories the building could be instead of what it really is. So one to two story buildings are being taxed as if they're high rises. And that got us thinking about venues we've lost to growth, gentrification or other financial reasons along the way. So this week's listener question asked, what is a music venue you miss that's no longer around? And some of those venues sounded amazing. My name is Mary Kate and I live in West Seattle. My favorite long-gone music venue is the Southgate House in Newport, Kentucky, and it was a historic like bluegrassy 1912 mansion um, on the banks of the Ohio River. There was a ballroom in the basement, and I saw like uh, the Twilight Singers there for the first time, and I saw Wolf Parade, Clap Your Hands, Say Yeah. Probably my best memory is Daniel Johnson performing and drawing me a picture after a show one night. One time, Jens Lechman played there, and the crowd was really small, and he asked us all to like come closer to the stage, and then they like opened up these garbage bags and threw a bunch of balloons at us, and we just like bopped balloons around for the rest of the show. And, uh, and yeah, you would see like they were really good at cultivating local acts, so I saw so many local bands that I like grew to love there, and there'd be karaoke like on the weeknights, so it was like you didn't have to go for a big show. You could just go hang out, and it would be either like – a cool dive bar, or it would be just like a fun house for music-loving hipsters. And it lives on in a church down the street called the Southgate House Revival, but that mansion and the way that it existed in my late 20s, it just isn't around anymore. True love will find you in the end You'll find out just who was your friend Don't be sad. My name is Jane Oliver, and I currently live in Appleton, Wisconsin. But my favorite music venue of all time was a place called Tom's Foolery, which was in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, between the years 1985 and 1989. I was a student at CMU during those exact same years. Some of the bands that would play there uh, regularly were Red Cross, Afghan Wigs, uh, Fishbone played there, The Dead Milkmen. My favorite show was The Flaming Lips. It was just a really fantastic place, but was only there for a mere five years. Um, And it was such a community for uh, mystic kids like me and so many other people that 20 years after Harvey sold the bar, there was a bar reunion and people literally came from all over the country just to come back and remember this community that we had formed at the bar called Tom's. Well, it was called Tom's Foolery, but we just called it the Foolery. It was such a great weekend. And the the first night we went to the bar, which is under new ownership called Rebels. And we drank so much, we we drank all their beer. So that was the kind of group it was. And it was just a really great time. and, And I miss it. So my name is Amy. I currently live in Los Angeles, but I grew up in North Seattle. 
And in my teen years, I was fortunate enough to have both a car and quite a bit of freedom to go basically do what I wanted to do. And most of the time that included on weekends driving uh, southbound on I-5 and parking under the viaduct and making my way through Pioneer Square to the Velvet Elvis. That place holds a really special place in my heart. I spent a lot of time and a lot of weekends there. It was basically you know, a haven for all ages shows in Seattle in the 90s. As you probably gathered, you know, my, my experience is like the, the location itself wasn't great. And quite frankly, the actual venue wasn't spectacular either. It was really cramped, uh, kind of seedy. There were lots of hallways and stuff on the ground and stairs. And I'm sure it wasn't the best place to be if there were ever an earthquake or anything like that. But I hardly cared because it was a place that I just had a lot of memories and a lot of music and a lot of friends. One of the best things about that place is it was just a pretty small, it's an old converted theater and a pretty small stage that you could stand next to, if not even on, to watch the bands. I always joke, you know, kind of on the best days, you could you could almost reach out and touch the bands. And on the worst days, you had to watch out that you were going to get smashed into either one of their amps or the brick wall or something like that. I spent a lot of weekends there. And probably one of the bands that I saw the most was a hardcore punk band, the name of Undertow. Hi, my name is Dave Bagley from Seattle. I'm wondering if anybody else remembers the storeroom in the early to mid 90s. There's a hole in the wall on East Lake next to I-5, right where the Belmont Avenue Bridge went up to Capitol Hill. Cheap pictures, cramped spaces, cramped space, cigarette haze all the time. The dive bar that like so-called dive bar enthusiasts didn't last for more than one drink in if they made it in at all. The weirdos pulling into screaming arguments and then hitting on your girlfriend at the next minute. You'd find blood on your shoes from a dog fight. Two patrons' pit bulls got into next to you at the bar. That one old guy who claimed to be the first black seafare pirate, that guy had stories to tell. Deeply weird jukebox selections. We'd sing along to Frank Zappa's Bobby Brown at the bar. Thanks to Freddie, I'm a sexual spastic. It was a small box of a venue, uh, booths along one wall, bar on the opposite wall, tiny concert space in the front corner. One time I was coming in from the rain and threw open the front door and knocked over the bass player right in the middle of the song. Uh, there was always loud guitar, bass, drums, bands playing, moshers being thrown against the tables, beer going everybody, nobody caring. Your ears would ring for days afterwards. Lots of bands, but uh, this story doesn't end with like, uh, and that band was Sunny Day Real Estate or anything like that. I don't think anybody made it out of the storeroom as far as I know. It was just its own little, loud, filthy corner of the Seattle scene, and it was awesome. Oh God, oh God, I'm so fantastic. Thanks to Freddy, I'm a sexual spastic. And my name is Bobby Brown. Watch me now, I'm going down. And my name is Bobby Brown Watch me now, I'm going down And my name is Bobby Brown Watch me now, I'm 
Thanks to everyone for writing in as part of the listener question. I will tweet this week's listener question if you want to get a chance to be featured as part of next week's podcast on the listener question segment. You can follow me on Twitter. I am at Fox on the radio. And I also want to give a special shout out to someone who wrote in as Emra One. They wrote a review of the Sound and Vision podcast on Apple Podcasts the other week. Thank you so much for doing that. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing this podcast helps other know it exists and help deem this podcast worthy in the digital world we live in these days. So if you could take a minute or two of your time and subscribe, rate, or review this podcast, that would mean a lot. You can also take the extra step and give a one-time $20 donation to this podcast at kexp.org slash sound. And special thanks to our contributors this show, DJ Miss Ashley with production assistance from Hans Anderson. I am Sound and Vision senior producer, Emily Fox. Thank you so much for listening. I will leave you with the final question of the show. Why does music matter? Here's Michael Kuanuka. Music matters because it's the most universal language and it brings people together. And there's nothing like music to put two people together in the same space that could be from opposite ends of the world but if there's that music that they both share love for they can and relate to um, you can stand together and enjoy it and not even be able to speak to each other in the same language and never be able to even communicate but you can still appreciate that music and so it brings it's a universal language that like no other and that's for me that's why it's so important Did you ever want it Oh